0: From South Bend, Indiana, I'm Jacob Titus. Welcome to More People. More People is a new article and podcast series written by Joe Molnar and published on West SB that explores how South Bend lost 50,000 people in 50 years. On each episode, I'll be joined by Joe and my South Bend On Purpose co-host, Dustin Mix, to discuss the latest article in the series, how it was received online, and what's coming up next. Welcome to episode two of More People. My name is Jacob Titus. I'm joined by Dustin Mix and Joe Molnar to talk about Joe's second article in the More People series that he's writing on WestSB.com. And first, congratulations are in order, Joe, because you showed up on a newsletter today. Do you want to tell us a little bit about where you showed up where the more people series showed up online today
1: yeah i was just going about my day and you sent me this nice link uh aaron wren who is one of the preeminent i guess urban thinkers in the country but then specifically about the midwest uh highlighted the series in his uh weekly newsletter so that was really cool he had a very nice review um it was very kind um Kind of detailed the points a little bit and expressed how they're mirrored throughout the Rust Belt, and it's something that yeah you know, if you if you care about Rust Belt cities, he said you should read a bit, read about it. So
2: that was really cool. We had a national audience, and yeah, yeah, because because Joe probably won't say it. I will read a line from it, which is says so far the series has been excellent, revealing a number of things that might be surprising to casual observers. Um, which I think describes all the hard work you've been putting in, Joe, so far. Thanks.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think at the very end it says this series should provide a very good window into the population dynamics of older industrial cities throughout the Heartland, which I think is really cool that people are noticing that there's something being said here about all cities like South Bend who went through these similar shifts. Like the things you're talking about, are specific to South Bend, but they're also not specific to South
1: Bend. Yeah, the specifics are different. The trends are very relatable to other, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. very specifically Rust Belt cities. And some northeastern industrial towns, you know, like in Connecticut have, and like Springfield, Massachusetts, have very similar stories.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and while Aaron is one of the most, like, specifically urbanist space people to uh, post about the series. I will mention that I, I know that not everyone is going to notice this, but because I'm kind of paying attention and I'm sure like you are Joe as well, like who is sharing this, who's passing this around on the days that the articles come out. The articles have found themselves uh, in the hands of people uh, across the country. Each time that they've come out there, are um, some urban planning people in Indianapolis, Akron, Fort Wayne, Boston, this last one, uh, yeah, all interested in uh, yeah, what's happening here in South Bend?
1: Yeah, it's it's been really uh, not overwhelming, but you know, very encouraging that so many people have found the series uh, enlightening and they're enjoying reading it. Um, it adds pressure to make sure that the content quality stays high throughout the duration of it. Um, which is probably good it's always good to have pressure (laughs) usually makes things better in the end um but yeah it's kind of amazing like oh this i don't even know how most the people like most of them find it at this point um but it's awesome to get on twitter or facebook and see people sharing it who you really respect and look up to in the field so
0: yeah yeah for sure yeah and we're getting close to i don't know if this, this may be like a little bit of like a spoiler for people but i guess if you're listening to the podcast then you deserve this sort of information but we're getting uh pretty close to 10,000 views on the series so far
1: on the like the series as a whole which is uh it's crazy quite remarkable <laughs> that's a yeah. crazy the big number <laughs> the big number I, I think if you would have asked me at the very beginning i'd have been like maybe 10,000 for like all six articles in a year <laughs> not the first first three
0: weeks yeah I think I right I think I would have possibly felt similar I yeah was not uh prepared for kind of the response uh which has been really cool and I guess um that like leads me into one thing that you would put uh you had messaged us that you wanted to talk about and I think is maybe an interesting way to get started in talking about this second article um So the second article in the series is called Suburbanization, Not Studebaker. And we can get into specifically like what you're saying in this article, but you had pointed out to us that you were seeing a difference in um, people's response to the series based on if they live in the city and if they don't. Uh, And that it was interesting to see kind of some of these fault lines show up that maybe we could have guessed were there before, but to see them actually kind of show up in... Facebook comments and tweets and yeah, email responses.
1: They've definitely come out.
0: Yeah. Can you talk to talk us a little bit about what you were noticing? there? Sure.
1: Um, so specifically I noticed kind of, especially after this last piece, because it is really about the suburbanization of St. Joe County and how that affected South Bend. It seems if you don't live in South Bend proper, but you live in the county either Anywhere in the county, the Mishawaka or Granger or anywhere in unincorporated county or or maybe even farther out into one of the other suburbs in another Mm -hmm. county. Um, They push back way more on the fact that I've minimized somewhat the deindustrialization, the fall of Studebaker as one of the drivers of population loss. Um, On Reddit, actually, someone called me on. I actually don't know where this person was from, but it was kind of succinctly the argument. He even said like. Oh, it's a really good article series. It's been well. It's clearly well resourced, and he was very nice, or she was very nice about that. um But then they said, like, this is just kind of dancing around it, and it's like ninety percent of the reason is because the jobs are gone. That's why we lost population. Like, and he specific, they mm-hmm. specifically said like ninety percent, and I, it really like saddened me because I was like, well, no, because the numbers don't lie. And 90% of the reason is because households are smaller. <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. That's like the whole point of the series. So far, mm-hmm. like the big point. <laughs> and like, literally nine. like if we had the same household size as we did in 1960, we would have only lost like 7,000 people instead of 32,000. So it's not jobs like at, at the forefront. Right. Um, yeah. And I've seen that kind of argument from a lot of people, I think, and it, I don't know if it helps them rationalize the fact that they still relate with South bend, but they're not in South bend. Um, and yeah. I think it, it gives them maybe something to point to and say, well, the jobs left. So like other people left. Um, but then when it's all the response from the people who actually are residents today of South bend um, for one is just more positive in general, um, which is interesting. Like you could make a case. It should be less positive. Cause it's like <laughs> their city that I'm talking about. Um, yeah. But- of course, like all great stories about South Bend, like the people really shine through and like the people have been really enthusiastic about it that I've talked to. Mm-hmm. Um, but they always are really can really latch onto this story because I think for one, they're still there. So they have a rationale for why they're there. And two, I think they kind of inherently get the unfair nature of how suburbanization picked winners and losers in our, you know our County. Um, And, you know, I don't make as many subjective judgments in the piece about what's good and bad that might come at a later date. Um, But it's pretty clear to see like suburbanization was not good for South Bend. Um, You know, the rise of wealthy suburbs for people who generally are still very much a part of the South Bend community, um, but don't reside in South Bend anymore. That's that's just a net negative, no matter what way you look at it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and the people you were saying that like the people here seem to have this kind of intuitive nature about like understanding this the way that suburbanization affected South Bend. And I on a I think the simplest level it's like we watched it happen. Like people who still live in these neighborhoods watched people leave and they know people. Um uh, I know I know a good number of people who used to live in South Bend or their family used to. Their parents or grandparents who Living Granger now. Yeah. And, uh, I think it, it, just about everyone in South Bend has, uh, a story or two or 10 like that. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, my, my family's that story <laughs> like from a very, my,
0: yeah. And that's, and I think that that's where you start this article, right? Yeah.
1: I start the article, you know, kind of explaining when I was born, I lived in the city limits. Um, I, my family, I was the third kid, third and final kid that my parents had in the early nineties. Um, and the first, you know, a couple years of my life grew up in a city neighborhood and, um, it was a three bedroom house. And I think, you know, my parents did pretty well and they, you know, they were solidly middle-class and they wanted to get a bigger house where each kid had their own room and, you know, all these standard things that you hear. And I know my dad actually always like, and he says he, his biggest regret is he never bought like one of the big mansions on West Washington street. Like he always, whenever mm-hmm. we drive down that road, he like points like 12, that he's been in because he toured them and he couldn't convince my mom to do it. Um, <laughs> but they ended up on the, the far South side just out of the city limits. Um, so that's where I spent my childhood. Um, outside of the fact that I still went to Our Lady of Hungry school and, and kind of really adapted to the rum village neighborhood. Cause that's where I stayed. Um, where all mm-hmm. my friends were from. Um, but, uh, yeah so i i'm trying not to you know like i think people get really defensive about it um which to me kind of shows how important it is like that they get defensive about they know there's something inherently like important about this that they think they might be on the bad side of history or the wrong side of what happened um but i'll be the first one to say like my my family did it too um and, you know, like I've moved into the city now. It was a very conscious choice my wife and I made when we were looking for homes. We told the realtor, only show us homes in the city limits of South Bend. Um, mm. But, you know, it's it doesn't change the fact that I, you know, my family, which like I've talked about in the previous episode, you know, was a very large family. You know, my extended family all were from the city limits and very few of us now actually reside here.
0: Yeah, yeah. After telling your story at the beginning of the article, you have this uh, interesting fact that Saint Joseph County has more people residing in its boundaries today than any other time in history. Yes. And you describe that a little more and then say, "I raise this point to say the argument that South Bend would inevitably lose population due to the loss of Studebaker and other manufacturers does not hold water." Yes. Can you talk us start to talk us through a little bit of like what you're communicating in this this article why why doesn't that argument hold water
1: well i think and it's okay so if you saint joe county is kind of an easy way to look at it because the argument always is studebaker declined and closed and so did south and toy and all these you know dozens of other factories have closed that Mm. were here um and the argument is, well, that led to population decline because those p- jobs are gone. So the people left to go find other jobs. But as anyone who lives here knows, our job market, and it's probably been this way since at least the 60s, I, you know, our job market is largely one job market within St. Joe County. Um, anyone you know, probably might, like I have a great friend who lives in South Bend, but he works in Mishawaka, you know, and there's vice versa all the yeah. time. And if anything, South Bend today is still a job hub for the county. Um. So if it was purely the argument that like the decline of manufacturing jobs, which the whole county has experienced, I mentioned in the piece, Mishawaka has lost 40% of its manufacturing jobs, probably more because that was 2010. So that, that's 10 years old data now. But from 1960 to 2010, mm-hmm. they lost 40%, which I think South Bend was like 49. So not orders mm-hmm. of magnitude different than Mishawaka, but they gained 17,000 people and we didn't. We lost. You know, thirty-two thousand. Yeah. So the so yeah. if you the whole county lost manufacturing jobs, um, and it's a like I don't see it all where you can say, well, that led to population decline. Well, point to me how because I don't see it. What led to population decline is the fact that people don't live in South Bend anymore, but they still live in St. Joe County. Like they still work here usually they still live here they just moved outside of the city limits um and is that would that's why i I kind of i don't think i quite mentioned the piece but i've said to other people talking about the topic like if studebaker survived somehow say pretend studebaker lived and then i don't know got bought out by gm and became like a gm brand and there was still a factory somewhere Mm. in south bend that employed five thousand people do you think the city would look that much different like i don't I don't at all. Like I, I, you know, maybe on the minimal part of yeah, it. Interesting, but like I don't think it would look because people who work at that factory could still live in the suburbs. Like, why wouldn't they have moved into the suburbs anyway? Even if their job was still, it's you know, we live in we live in a small enough community where it's a twenty minute drive everywhere. So if you are working at a job and you know in this you know Studebaker of today, why couldn't you live in Granger still? Like we have, we have tons of people who live in Granger who work in South Bend still. Like I know many lawyers and attorneys and doctors who live or who work downtown, but live in Granger. So why wouldn't that happen if it was a manufacturing job? Like it just doesn't make any sense. Mm. Um, Mm. It doesn't make any sense to me, to me at all. Um, So I, I think it's, you can make the argument and I, the first one to make the argument that like deindustrialization The end of Studebaker was was not good for South Bend. Like, I'm not going to, like, pretend that that wasn't a, a bad thing. But when you're specifically talking about population, I don't see where it really does anything except for the fact that the whole county, the job growth slow or the I'm sorry, the population growth did slow down mm-hmm. and maybe if we had still Lots and lots of jobs it would be higher but like It didn't ever go backwards Um Right So it only did in South Bend like Why didn't it happen in Mishawaka Is I think a good kind of way And kind of segue into the Little bit more of the pieces Mishawaka Annexed like crazy And South Bend didn't
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, And that's like the one Difference between the two of them Right
0: Right there's also some demographic, like racial demographic differences between the two cities, right?
1: Yeah. So, and this is something I I learned through the research of this piece. Something, again, you probably always knew. But so in 1960, 95% of African-Americans lived in South Bend. And like.
0: Of the 91st. Five percent of in the county. Yes,
1: ninety-five percent of African Americans in yeah. Central County lived in the city limits of South Bend, which is basically all wow. like all of them. You know, there were no African Americans outside of South Bend, and so Mishawaka, which I actually think had like one hundred African Americans in nineteen sixty. Oh my god, like a hundred, and they had a population of like thirty-three thousand. So one hundred of those, and it actually went down in the sixties. Wow. Like it actually dropped a couple people. <laughs> um, now it's climbed up. I think they've got like three thousand. So it's getting like i think Mm. it's like eight percent of their population now but still really small compared to what south bend is and it's it's a hard topic to talk about but like you know that's definitely part of it where i also speak in the piece about the fact that the population decline of south bend is 100 percent the loss of white people
2: uh Mm. every other yeah you have a chart in the in the piece that shows that yeah are some of the most fascinating numbers i think you i think you showed in this piece
1: yeah every demographic rose like i'm looking at now african-americans basically doubled since the the 1960s um hispanics have exploded you know it's like 10 times what it was in 1960 so the only like it's 100 percent that that white people left South Bend in white households um, again. And that's that makes people like cringe, I think, and get really nervous. But like, it is what it is. Um, and I think you can't just say, well, you know, that's a coincidence. Mm. Because I mm-hmm. yeah. what, it, what what this research has taught me, too, and I get into it a little bit and it, it happened in South Bend. So it's not like South Bend was exempt from this. But if if you wanted your new subdivision, your new land that you were building, say, 100 suburban households on in the county or in the city, even if you wanted it to be able to get FHA loans. So if you wanted the people buying these homes to be able to get a federally backed mortgage up until like the 80s and into the 90s, even if the federal government thought that it was going to be integrated housing, like if they would sell these also to African Americans, they would, they would just, Mm. they were not going to give these loans. We're not going to back those loans. And so developers would, even when the rule went away, it would took a very long time for that culture to go away where, Mm. so a lot of these, you know, subdivisions that sprang up in clay township and Penn township around this country were inherently for white people only at first. Um, yeah. And they're still very largely white. Um, that's just a fact. It, it, again, it makes people uncomfortable and it's not a fun part of our history to think about and acknowledge. But like, it's just it is what it is. South Bend was where we had diverse populations and that that's bed into the we had diverse class size. You know, in school, we had diverse schools that if you wanted your kid to go to an all white school, well, Mishawaka was right there
2: um right and it's it's also interesting too on that that note too you're talking though even within the city like how even neighborhoods that were like i think you talk about them still being suburban housing but within city limits yeah so like edison
1: park is like the example i gave in the piece which is where my in-laws live now and it's this great neighborhood but they're like the suburbs it's interesting. Today, we think of the suburbs as really, really wealthy and, you know, big McMansion type stuff, or at least around here we do, because that's what's getting built now. But the very first yeah. suburbs, like after World War II, were basically like GI houses um, for the returning veterans. Um, so they were mm-hmm. like in Edison Park. They're like almost all 800 to 900 square foot ranches with a basement like that's all Mm. they're all that way it's clearly like one developer had one design and he stamped it and like Mm. it worked kind of because it was still a very urban feel to the city but like that was the suburbs then um and there was this broad wealth um from this growing middle class in the 50s and like all the streets are named after world war ii like you have like congress drive and you know all like uh eisenhower Mm. like it's all (laughs) world war ii related like it's it's very much like that was the thing they were selling it to you know newly returned vets um and that was the suburbs and that and those are the houses that were very much um the fact that if they were not integrated on purpose like Mm. it might not have been explicitly stated in their deeds, like it wasn't sunny mead from 30 years earlier. Um, but the federal government made sure that that new housing was very much, you know, white only.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it makes me think of like earlier this week on, on Twitter, there's, I mean, there's been this kind of weeks long line of, um, line of thinking from Trump about, Uh, the suburbs and we're going to protect the suburbs. And uh, obviously there's all sorts of like uh, not so hidden uh, (laughs) racism in a lot of the things that he's saying, but somebody had a tweet that was (laughs) Joe, I think this might've popped up on my Twitter because you retweeted it, but they, here I'm scrolling down to find it here. Uh, Oh yeah, cuz Trump and Ben Carson did a opinion piece yeah, in the yep. Wall Street Journal that said, "We reject the ultra-liberal view that the federal bureaucracy should dictate where and how people live." Which is hilarious. under the title we'll, pro- "We'll protect America's suburbs." And he tweeted, "Oh, just wait until you hear about how the suburbs were made. You're going to be so mad." <laughs> <laughs> which is like exactly what you're talking about, which is this federal policy that can, that dictated like these are going to be uh, these are going to be um, all white Uh, neighborhoods surrounding with
1: with very strict government regulations on what you can and can't build which is really Mm. the 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 very ironic part of that op-ed because it's trying to be republican and like and not liking basically cities but at the same time it doesn't know how to handle the fact that like you're arguing for more government regulation and they call like the suburbs like ground like built from the ground up which is asinine because every (laughs) suburb in the united states was designed by a planner sitting at his desk marking out lines on a map where like thousands of people will live like that's just how suburb subdivisions were created and um you know it is what it is uh just don't shy away from it um credit where credit's due anyone listening who who wants to know more about this and wants to see if i'm like not just bullshitting you read the color of law um which i which there's a link mm-hmm. to it in the piece um it's a great book by richard rostein and i i read it in preparation for this this series um and it really details like it's 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 very de- a depressing read but in a you know he's a good writer but it's just really depressing because he just gives example after example after example of things we we probably understood were racist intent about how our cities and towns developed but like when he when it's actually spelled out, it's kind of eye opening. Um, Mm. And I think, you know, going from there, there's there's other reasons, too, for why this, you know, happened to South Bend. Um, Right. And I I think I I will talk about like one of the central like thesis, I think, of the article series as a whole that's popping up. Is that like South Bend lost population in the 20th century? because it's households got smaller. Like that is the number one thing. I think if I want anyone to take from this, it's that up until 2000, that was the sole reason we lost people. Um, and it had been happening our whole history, but up until 1960, we were growing enough and annexing enough and the city was gaining enough households where it didn't matter. Um, but what started happening in the sixties and then moving all the way to 1990 is it wasn't enough anymore. It just because suburbanization happened because so much of the growth in St. Joe County was outside of South Bend city limits and people did not want to be in South Bend city limits. They fought to keep their, you know, suburbs out of South Bend um, mm. because of that, we lost population. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's why I started the whole series with, dive with kind of diving into the neighborhoods to really see what it looks like at a ground level where a lot of stable neighborhoods have 20 to 30% less population than they used to. Well, if you multiply that mm. out by a whole yeah. city, no wonder we have lost, you know, population. I,
2: I, w- I was struck by that when you, you know, when another one of the tables you have here is just the population and number of households that make up that population. When you look from like compare the year 1940 to 2010, almost exactly the same number of people but it took us 12,000 more households to yeah. have that many people it's i mean i know we've talked about it even in the last That's podcast episode with the like kind of population per household you can see it in that in that number as well going from 3.6 to 2.5 but when you actually see those like just happens to work out that the 1940 population is almost entirely the same yeah. as the number of people in 2010 but just the massive Number of households that we needed to get there, uh, really, really fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's it shocks me almost every single time I like remember it <laughs> because it's such a like oh wow if if South Bend really still wanted to grow it would have had to we'd have to have like sixty thousand households now essentially. Um, and what's even more interesting wow. is like the county was going through the same thing at a slightly slower slower pace. Um but it still gained population because it did add enough households um so it's it's not like it couldn't have been done like um, I give the example of Fort Wayne in the piece um because Fort Wayne and South Bend kind of get compared as two similar ish cities. I think people have a lot of a better image of Fort Wayne in their head, and it's it's kind of oh, not a lie. But it's because Fort Wayne did annex all its suburbs and has continued from administration to administration to do so. They really pushed annexation. And so because of that, you know, they have a population of like 250,000 now. But I want to read like they're even their own um, planning. Let's see, even their own planning. Um, website says this where it's just they like blatantly say it they say since the early 1950s fort wayne has extensively utilized annexation as a tool to keep up with the patterns of suburban sprawl in fact over 175 individual annexations have been initiated by fort wayne over the past five decades these annexations included both voluntary and involuntary annexations (laughs) <laughs> like wow. they sh- and i kind of more power to them because they they're what they're saying there is we realized that okay we're the primary city for our county and our region the growth in this city is happening outside of its city boundaries we need to correct that because it's better if south if fort wayne encompasses all the areas that are collectively known as fort wayne um mm. And it, I think in a further piece, I'm going to dive into like, is annexation good? Is annexation bad? And it really comes down to what you're annexing. And there's, you know, there's pros and cons to it. Um, But, you know, today, Fort Wayne gets a lot of credit for being the second largest city in Indiana, population at 250,000, um, you know, it gives them a lot of different tools they can use. They have a much larger tax base. Um. Where, you know, Allen County, which is where Fort Wayne is located, and St. Joe County aren't that much different in population, but like South Bend and Fort Wayne, like Fort Wayne's two and a half times South Bend now. Um, So it just shows that they were very successful while South Bend was very not successful. Um, And one thing I've learned through the pieces, we tried to be, but we failed epically. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Uh, in, do you, with, with annexing? Yes. Yeah. Do you know how many annexations we had in the city? I don't period?
1: know the number, but like I, so I can dive into it this way. So um, Fort Wayne went from 38 square miles in 1960 to 110. So that's oh like God. two and a half times. They basically like doubled and then another half their city limits. Yeah. Mishawaka went from seven. To 17 so again about two and a half wow. times mm. South Bend only went from I think it was like 28 to 42 so and a lot of that is the airport like that includes mm. the massive airport which is a couple square miles let's see oh I'm sorry it was 24 square miles to 41.6 so definitely like way smaller growth right. than Fort Wayne and Mishawaka Um
0: Wow, I've never looked at this, but I just pulled up the map while you were while you were doing this. The
1: airport is massive. Oh, it's yeah, it, it, it distorts when you look at a map of South Bend, like the city limits, it distorts South Bend because like all the population is like inside of where that, you know, like area is south of that airport, yeah. except for a couple of suburban things. Um, But it's it's huge. You know, it, it counts as a wow. large part of that 42 square miles at least. A couple. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really even right. like Mitchell, Arca doesn't have an airport. So theirs was purely commercial and residential. Um right. You know, which is another thing. Like South Bend has the airport. You know, like we um we've taken on a lot of these responsibilities that the community does need. Like it's very good for St. Joe County to have an airport. Um And, you know, South Bend's the largest city still, and it's the primary city. It's the county seat. So, like, of course, it's going to be South Bend's airport. And, like, it's its own entity. It's not controlled by the city government. But, like, there are costs there. There are roads that have to go out there Mm. and be paved by the city. And, you know, there's consequences to that um, that are essentially pawned off on city residents. Um, uh, Dustin, you, I always like, you might not even remember the comment, but in the first podcast, you kind of asked like, why does this matter? Mm-hmm. Um, And I don't think I've answered that well in either the series or in the podcast yet. And I, cause I think, cause I'm gonna have a whole article just like, why does this matter? Like, why did all this stuff I tell you actually matter in the end? Cool. Um, Cause it, it matters a lot. And I think it deserves its own like kind of centerpiece, but reading the annexation report that the city put out in 92, which basically said like the city needs to step up and annex more. Um, it, it gave a very good argument for why this is important that like the growth is happening outside the city. And it was basically saying like everyone in St. Joe County benefits from the fact of South Bend being what it is. Like we have a downtown that is attractive mm-hmm. for everyone in the county to go to as like the prime urban space in the city. We have an airport, you know, we have a lot of the resources that, other people outside of South Bend depend on a lot of their jobs are in South Bend. So South Bend has a commuter population. It's um, so basically a daytime population. This was last estimated by the census um, of 122,000. So what that means is mm. during like a random Tuesday, you know, pre pandemic during like a random Tuesday, South Bend grew by 20,000 people during the daytime because everyone came into the city to work. Mm. Um, and that counts people leaving, like that's so even more than 20,000 coming because some South Bend people like actually go out of the city to work. Um, and Mishawaka is like flat, like it doesn't have that effect at all. Like um, so it really shows like South Bend is a prime employer too even in it's like that's another like kind of push against against it was all jobs. Well, South Bend still has more jobs than it should, like based on a population count. Um, so mm-hmm. South Bend has all these things that people rely on. Um, but if you live in the County or you live in Mishawaka, you don't contribute at all to the maintenance of those, you know, you don't, you know, you don't like at all, really, we have a system where I'm pretty sure our County income, like the income tax goes to where you live, not where you work. I could be wrong on that, but I don't think I am. Um, obviously property taxes, I think makes up like three fourths of the city budget. So if you don't live in South Bend, even, as a renter or a homeowner, like your house isn't paying taxes. Um, but you know, you drive on the roads again, you depend on the airport to go to work. You know, you depend on all these mm-hmm. things, you know, you enjoy the river walk um, that is, you know, publicly. Yeah, you know, I was going to say even things like our like parks budget. Like yes. If you come down to Howard Park that's enjoyed by a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you come down to, and like, that's that's okay. It's not like a negative that like, cause you want, you want your prime city to be good enough to attract people from all over. Like that's good for South bend to Mm -hmm. have money coming in from outside of just its residents. But where it's a negative is where there's, it's at the, you know, it's at the expense of South bend um, where so much, Mm. you know, it's, it's where all the growth is happening outside the city limits and South bend's kind of frozen in time and shrinking. Um, But we are still expected to have, the prime downtown for the area we're still expected to have the best you know the park system that people enjoy um so it's that's part of why it matters is purely from like an equity standpoint um especially when you get into the fact that the people who live outside of the city are wealthier than the people that live in it yeah and white and white yeah you know (laughs) and yeah exactly the racial aspect of as well is you're burdening this city which has a lot of legacy costs and again it's ours to bear because we are the city and that's good like we want south bend to have a great downtown that people come to but at the same time you're expecting this you know less white less wealthy community to support it for the whole county
2: it's interesting it would be a an interesting like further analysis is, is something that stuck with, I think both Jake and I from the first podcast was you made a a comment um, that I think is kind of central to the entire series, which is that like there is not necessarily a direct correlation between like economic, I don't know if you said economic decline and population decline. Yeah. Um, but it would be interesting to take some of these numbers and just say, like, based on what we know at the time of like average income in the areas, like, what how much money moved actually out of oh, the Oh, yeah, that would be um, fascinating. And and especially like when you think about it from a, like you're saying from a tax perspective. Yeah, um, I mean, would be really interesting.
1: People who you know read the the second article, the the cover photo that Jake found, then that's fantastic. Is of Granger. In the 1950s, uh, you know,
0: like downtown
1: yeah, Granger, down, you know, corner of Adams and 23. And it is, for anyone not looking at it, you know, right now, it is farmland as far as the eye can see and woods,
2: <laughs> fields. Yeah. So
1: basically, yeah. Granger today has 30,000 people. Um, so essentially, since 1960, about 30,000 people built this community called Granger. And I'm not trying to pick mm-hmm. on Granger because, like, it happens in the other places that don't have names to, you know, suburbs around the city that don't have like a Granger to hold on to. Um, but that's a lot. It took a lot of wealth and it generated a lot of wealth for the people who live there. And a lot of those people, their jobs are in South Bend where before. So say how, it, and I've talked with a lot of smart people about this who really always pick up on it in like 1900, if you are a wealthy person who worked in South bend, you didn't f- go as far away from the city as possible and just drive in once a day and get out and, you know, except like go to a restaurant or something, you built a giant mansion in the heart of downtown, like mm-hmm. or the edge of downtown to show off how much you loved the city, like how wealthy you were yeah.
2: back to West Washington. Yeah. Back to West Washington and <laughs> Chapin
1: park East Wayne's yeah. probably the last version of that, yeah. um, yeah, in East Jefferson. So, and those households were, you know, they were assessed for a ton of money, so those property taxes went right back into the city. The people who, um, the people who built those, you know, the Studebakers, the Alvers, they gave the city lots of great things. The Studebaker Fountain, for example, sits in my mind, like that was something a 100% just given, like there's. Countless. Instances. They built churches. They built beautiful churches. You know, they they invested in this community because it was just one community. It was just South Bend. And like we all live here. And it, it's probably a consequence of the fact that they couldn't leave. So they had to make it nice. You know, they couldn't retreat. You know, maybe some of them did have country estates, but like in order to be, you know, to work at the factory, to be the manager or whatever, the factory, the owner, they had to be very close you know, they put a lot of their money back into the community. Um, mm. and I'm not trying to lionize these people. Cause it was just the culture of the day. I don't think they were any good or worse than people today. Um, but the culture at the time was to very much give back to the community that, you know, you were in, um, for one, it was for their own pride. Cause then they could say like, Hey, look at the Studebaker Fountain. It's named after me, you know, <laughs> um, look at this beautiful church I just right. built. Like, aren't I such a great guy? Um, and we're seeing a little bit of that again um, in South Bend where, you know, you're getting wealthier people to to contribute to, to big public works types things, um, but nowhere near the scale. And again, like they left us these gorgeous homes, which are still really valuable. So they're still giving to the community 100 years after they're gone because they built something beautiful that lasted that, you know, has contributed money to the city over and over and over again because they built wealth here and that stopped happening in the sixties, um, everywhere in the country. Um, not just a South Bend problem, um, you know, with the rise of suburbanization. Um, so it's, it's very interesting where you talk about Dustin, you know, the wealth literally moving, you know, they basically built a whole community where there was mm-hmm. nothing. And that takes a lot of money <laughs> to do that. Um, <laughs> just to get out of South Bend and somewhat out of Mishawaka too, even like just to get out of any of the cities.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Interesting.
0: And I, th- I think you were talking about like they had, there was this, the culture of the day was this culture of giving back and um, like building into the community around you. And I think that like part of it is, you know, giving back and this kind of charitable attitude. But I also think as much of it is they understood that is for their own good as well. Oh yeah, like it's good for the Studebakers to build nice churches that are kind of anchors of neighborhoods and have, you know, uh, like community space that that neighbors meet each other. Like that, that's good for their well being.
1: Yeah, for their companies,
0: people who employed a ton of people in South Bend.
1: Yeah, if it. You know, yeah, the job helped. You know, they were paid pretty good wages. You didn't have need a ton of skill to go and work at one of these factories. But if you wanted to attract people to South bend, Indiana, you know, from the East coast or whatever, it helped to know, Hey, they have a great park system, you know, or Hey, they have a great, you know, sense of community and it's a beautiful city. And, you know, Jake, mm. you know this better than anyone having read, you know, so many of these older newspaper articles, but like South bend was called beautiful, like in every article, um, yeah. and cause it really was like, you look at these photos, like it was beautiful architecture, good urban design, beautiful homes. Mm-hmm. you know, I'm not trying to, again, there was a lot of bad things about that time that today we've, we recognize that were negatives, but yeah, right. there was, it was, there was very much a sense of what's good for South Bend is good for Studebaker and Oliver Plough and all these other companies. So, it, you know, it kind of built on itself in a way that that disconnect has happened now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. It's so funny that you bring this up because I just, yeah, just today I went on a long walk, uh, kind of winding through a lot of the neighborhoods between Lincoln way, West and Western. And, yeah. uh, on my way back, I was walking down Chapin, uh, past copcial home. And I was l- like looking at it and like the Kaiser mansion there. And yeah. I was having this thought because I knew we were going to be talking tonight. And I was thinking, uh, how weird, like that they built a house right here. Um, at least by today's standards and like how people with with money um think about where they're gonna live and build their house um that like the studebaker i mean studebaker mansion's even closer to the city than copsholm and they're just smack dab right there very visible uh in the city
1: yeah, they didn't shy away like they wanted to be known that they were living there, that they were wealthy, that they were one of the fathers of the city, basically, in a way that mm-hmm. like now our culture is to hide your wealth, you know, to not showboat, to not, you know, try to do those things. Or if you're going to do it, don't do it around poor people <laughs> like that's kind of the attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but it was even more than just like the uber wealthy moving out. Um because there was very much like it was a middle-class exodus of cities across the country. And I want to give yeah. credit where credit is due. The um the annexation report I want to talk a little bit about, because I think it's a fascinating document that like you can read today. It's on the article as well. It's sourced. Um, they basically admit this comp- the the city at the time when this report was published that like, South Bend missed the bar like we we screwed up we we let this middle class wealth develop outside of the city limits and we didn't capture it um and now Mm -hmm. it's not good and they identify all these different reasons and I kind of just want to run through them because I think one issue people are having trouble with really understanding the series I think is they still want to latch on to like one thing like Studebaker closed or crime or bad schools or like integrated schools. And they want to like say that was the one reason. And kind of what I'm saying is like, there's the household decline, which explains a ton of it from a pure numbers perspective. But like, if you want to explain why South Bend didn't keep up and didn't make up for the fact with more new households, like it had its whole history. There's a thousand reasons why. Um, And they detail these like six that I'll just run through real quick. So increased mobility resulted in people able to seek jobs and live in areas not served by public transportation. So starting in the sixties and seventies, everyone got a license. Everyone could drive. You could go live 40 minutes outside of South bend and work in downtown mm-hmm. South Bend or work at a factory where that wasn't possible in 1920. Um, yeah. Two liberal extension of sewer and water service beyond the city limits, allowing opportunities for high density projects, such as apartments in the County. This is a big one south bend for a very long time and even today makes it pretty easy to be on city water and city sewer without being in the city limits um interesting almost all of clay township is like it's on city water and city sewer but it's not in the city limits and it's kind of like the city had a carrot and we gave it away Like here's this carrot, like if you want to be, you know, Mm. if you want to, if you want our great city water and city sewer infrastructure and you don't want to have to have a well or septic, you know, you have to become in the city limits. And we, instead of that, we said, well, we'll just charge you a surcharge. And we still do that today. I think it's like 20%, but it's only on the water. So it's like of that, of the portion of your water bill, it's, it's only like a couple bucks. These people, these households pay today. Um, which is good from a city water perspective. Like we're getting more money for like, it's it's just more customers basically for the company that is the municipal water system. But it's not so good for the city because like we're, we're, we're basically giving you the benefit of being in the city without you letting you be in the city. Um, That's right. number two.
0: Yeah. I remember learning about this right. a little bit in, in Bloomington because Bloomington tried to not do that essentially. Yeah. And I remember it being kind of such a foreign concept to me there's like they just told people like you can build out there but we're not doing anything for you yeah and, and it, it did keep people from from doing that
1: yeah or they you know they find they give in and they they agree to be annexed mishawaka and i was told this by somebody who i trust knows it's true but i not 100 i've been told mishawaka is much more stringent like they don't do that mm. which you know they've been able to annex a lot more than we have, you know? So that's number two, number three, a uh, large, numerous tracts of develop land can accommodate newer and larger homes. So like that picture in Granger, 1950 suggests like there was a ton of open land that was farmland, which was relatively cheap to buy. Um, yeah. That one, I I think is kind of a weak argument because like they could have bought it and it annexed it into the city, but they didn't. Um, number four, wow. which I think this is important when we talk about Granger is is the soil in our region is generally suitable for private well and septic systems um, combined with loose state law governing such systems contributed to the encouragement of development without central sewer and water. So we have really good soil that makes it possible to do a well and septic. So even though we do Mm -hmm. give away basically our city and water and sewer with very limited Repercussions. If you don't want to do that, you can because it's possible. Um, I've been told Allen County it's m- like the clay soil, like the septic and sewer don't work together. Like they bleed into each other, and then you have undrinkable water. Interesting. So you have to yeah. use their water. Um, number five, the development requirements in the county are generally less rigorous than those of South Bend, such as no sidewalks, street lights, sewer water lines, or fire hydrants. So basically, if you wanted. A cheaper home, you could build it in the county because they don't make you put a sidewalk in or streetlights. So if you're looking at from a developer perspective, I'm going to go build a new neighborhood of 100 homes. I can do it for X amount cheaper in this county. Um, so that encourages development outside of the county. I got a lot of comments on that. People saying that that was a really big reason. like The homes were simply cheaper and newer um, hmm. in the county. And then the final one, the, the report, put out was there was no countywide growth plan, you know, management plan that would have recognized the haphazard, you know, land development. So basically the county government never stopped it and said, hey, maybe this isn't good for any of us. Um, you know, what a surprise. Yeah, what a surprise. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's, that's what the annexation report kind of point out. I, and then in the article, I talked about it a few yeah. more, um, but I wanted to get those out because I, I do talk about crime you know as an imposing thing and i talk about schooling and jobs but like at some point they're they're really like simple little things like water extension that like people don't think about yeah but when you combine all the six things i just talked about like that's a big i call it in the article like that's a big barrier south bend had to get over and it couldn't do it because like all those things were stacked against the ability for south bend to grow um some of them were very self-inflicted like i'm not saying it's all someone else's fault like south bend did a lot of this to ourselves too through decisions that we made
0: right yeah it does uh, it does strike, strike me that it seems like there are some like differing motivations um now or like in the like recent history and then like maybe like 40 50 years ago people moving to the suburbs like you were talking about the one reason being that it's simply just cheaper for some people, uh, especially. I mean, if you want a little bit like more space and stuff like that, yeah. that it can be cheaper. Um, being kind of a utilitarian uh, motivation, that I don't know if that exists as much today. I think it like that is still definitely like a role for some people, but um, yeah, it it made me think about, Bow I was in Indianapolis this weekend. Um, visiting some of Kristen's family, and they live in like the Fishers area. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and
1: big suburb. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, big time. I mean, it's yeah, like I, and you have yeah, and you like drive. I mean, you get off uh 31, and then you have to drive through like Carmel and Westfield and Noblesville to get there. That's yeah. I mean, it's hard to get more suburb uh yeah. anywhere and but i was thinking man this is our idea like our your idea of like a mo- model living like suburban living doesn't have sidewalks
1: yeah or mm-hmm.
0: streetlights and i just thought which is changing i i don't know how you make that argument
1: yeah it's i mean i I'm obviously I'm not the prime person <laughs> to defend the suburbs. Um, I, I very much am a city person. I, I love the rural life. Like I, I appreciate someone who wants like 50 acres out in the middle of nowhere. Absolutely. Yes. Like I get that. Yeah. I have a couple yeah. friends who own like that. And I love going out there and visiting the, or like actual farmers. I like my family, my mom's side, they're all farmers. I totally get that life. Like I get the appeal yep. to that and I get my life, a very urban life. Um, I don't get the the suburban and probably because i grew up in it and i didn't like it like i, I didn't mm-hmm. like that my friends could ride their bikes everywhere and to a park and i literally couldn't leave my subdivision because it was a very very busy road that had no sidewalks um <laughs> so I, I that probably made me an urbanist or whatever you know, just because of i didn't i always sense that this somehow seemed fake um and unsustainable uh The one last issue I will talk about too, because I kind of want to do justice to all these issues that people do bring up that are good. That again, like if I think of it, like South Bend had to clear this barrier to keep growing. And like all these things are bricks that just make that barrier higher and higher. Um, Taxes was, is a big one. And that's the one my dad will tell you was a big part of it because at the time, and it was true, city tax rates were much higher than County tax rates. Um, Mm. to the point where my dad today, even though today it's not really true at all because we have a state inflicted, you know, a state imposed tax cap of 1% on your value. So basically that like that equalized everybody almost to a point, um, Mm -hmm. where there's really not any difference between the County and city. Now it's just where the money goes more. If you're in the city, most of it goes to the city, and a tiny bit goes to the county. And if you're in the county, it all goes to the county government and your school corp. Um, but growing up, like you know, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, um, the city had a much higher tax rate. So if you had a hundred thousand dollar house, your taxes might be three thousand dollars in South Bend and one thousand dollars outside. So that's mm-hmm. a big incentive to to be out, especially if you can get city water and city sewer for a very tiny surcharge Um, and you can get the benefits of still living 20 minutes from the city and all that's You know, all that it gives, why wouldn't you live in the County? Like, unless you don't like the lifestyle, like, you know, there were all these cultural things and, and then there was a cultural like establishment that made it. So like suburbs were good. Cities were bad that we still have today. Like you just read the comments on some of these articles. Um, and then we backed those cultural issues up within systemic practices, both racist and not racist. Just like I said, taxes where if anything, you almost think it would be reversed. We're living in the County would have higher taxes because you drive farther on your roads. Like you come into the city and you don't, you know your taxes don't go to it at all like you could make the argument it should be reversed and you're usually mm. on a bigger pot of land that pays less tax per acre than a city lot um but we established all these systemic and you know organizational barriers as well for cities to grow um so it's no wonder like south bend declined like it's kind of amazing we're still such a great city today like i again mm. i'm not writing this series to to crap on South Bend like I love this city it's a great place to live I think and it's almost despite all these headwinds that we had and still have to compete with um, it's kind of impressive
0: yeah that's interesting
1: and I think um, and then I'll let you guys talk for as much as you want (laughs) so I don't hog the whole time but I kind of want to follow the arc of the article a little bit where I end with what I call like stage three stabilization in the nineties. Yeah. Just because the whole conceptual like argument of the article series is like, this is how South bend lost people. And I think a lot of people and Dustin, you brought this up in the first podcast. Like you asked is, was it like a steady decline? Was it bumpy? And it really was bumpy and it was two different types Again, not to keep hammering on it, but like the first type was primarily because we just didn't add enough households to make up for the fact that households were smaller. But in the 90s, so that happened all the way up to 1990. And in the 90s, we gained people. We gained about 2,500 people and we gained like 800 or 650 households. And I even write in the article, you could make an argument that like 1990 was going to be the low point of South Bend the city annexed a decent amount of more, the actual amount of vacant houses fell. So which is the first time that we have records of, like there were less vacant houses in 1999 than in 1990, which was totally different. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of good things and maybe on the ground, no one could have felt that. Like we talked about last time growing up in the nineties, it didn't feel like South Bend was getting better. It felt like, like you said, the fall happened and now it's kind of a stasis in a lot of metrics, the city was getting better in the nineties. It had weathered deindustrialization and suburbanization and it was moving forward. It was growing again. Um, and that's kind of where the article ends because the exact opposite happens in the two thousands and kind of everything falls apart. Um, but that'll be the next article.
2: I can't wait. (laughs) I I, I say that seriously. It's, yeah, this one, I enjoyed the first post just because of the, just the whole topic is interesting, but, um, this one was awesome, especially with the, a uh, big fan of the numbers and, and the charts and the different ways to slice the, the issues. Um, I'm curious, Joe, like what, you know, you mentioned throughout kind of your comments, some of the reaction that you've gotten, but, you know, all three of us talked about kind of offline before putting this out that, uh, this one could rub people a little bit of the wrong way um, because it is a very one, I think a very jarring different argument than what most people have been told. But two, I think there's something about it um, where Studebaker felt that it happened to the city. um, And it seems a little bit that suburbanization isn't so clear. You know what I mean? It's not, it's, it's not this like external force that, came down upon the city it's mm. uh it's a little bit more complicated so yeah I'm, I'm curious just like the the reactions overall you've got and anything that stands out to you You're,
1: i mean you just said it perfectly dustin like that's i think people it's easy for them to blame studebaker because they had nothing to do with it i mean like you know i was born 30 years after studebaker closed like you know my dad was a kid when studebaker closed like it's such a distant thing now when all these factories went bust that it's like, Oh man, that was bad. And like someone did that to us, or, you know, you know, big bag corporation did that to us. But like suburbanization, if you say that's why South Bend really suffered, um, like we're living today with those, like there are thousands and thousands of people who live in the suburbs of South Bend. So basically the argument is saying like it's people actively today who are st- still harm is still happening to South Bend because of that. And that's very personal then. Um, and I don't shy away from that. That that is a personal argument to make. Um, it's uncomfortable because a lot of the times these people do love South Bend, and for whatever reasons life has taken them outside and into the suburbs, and they they very much relate to the city. Um, but the truth is the truth, and I think sometimes in our society we 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 try to shy away from truth. And it, the truth is, like suburbanization was really really bad for South Bend, and it it helped some people, the people that got out of the city and the people who built out of the city and their school systems. um, But it, it was really bad for who was left and the properties that were left and the schools that were left and the businesses that remained. Um, And I think now people think, well, it's already done. Like the suburbs are built. So it's over, but like, it's, it's still actively bad.
2: Yeah, it's interesting too because it seems like a lot of the other things commonly thrown out whether that's uh, schools or you know infrastructure some of these other like things that people bring up about living in the city and why it's not good it's you know they they are still connected and created in kind of vicious cycles of this happening so like thinking about wealth moving out of the city and tax base moving out of the city And, you know, trying to, there's a, there's a, a sentiment that I've heard uh, a lot of people talk about when they talk about South Bend, especially downtown, where it's like, it was just built for a lot more people. And even when the people leave or have left, the infrastructure doesn't leave with it. No, (laughs) You you still have to maintain all of these things that were built uh, for 30 to 40% more people and not only you know are the people have left but like the money's left and um, or the tax base is left and so it's you know some of the arguments i don't know that they're necessarily wrong they just seem a little bit incomplete and a little bit of like okay why do schools suffer or yeah. you know why is there like infrastructure it could be infrastructure issues like where that's not just happening because it happens like there's there's something happening there and i think the this is like an interesting portion of of why some of that happens
1: yeah and you're even i mean you're hitting on the head and this is going to be part of the eventual article that's you know why this matters but it's even more than like the people leave and the people remaining have to pay for the infrastructure but like the people who left um because they left and there's only four houses left on the street where 10 used to be those basically you're paying for a road that the road costs the same even if there's only one house on it you know mm-hmm. we have to pave the road or we should pave mm-hmm. the road so it's like and then the houses that remained are even worth less because those other left because again people don't want to live on a block where half the houses are gone or at least you know some people do and i but the the wealth of the house decreases that even the people that remain are harmed by it um so yeah it's it's not something that happened and it's over it's it's actively every day impacting the city um i wanted to quote one of those planners that you talked about uh jacob at the beginning from boston mm-hmm. sandy johnston um because she kind of yeah really believes a she she really um honed in on what I was trying to say even better than i have so i'm just gonna quote her
0: i know as soon yeah i saw i saw her tweet and i was like man now
1: it, it like even makes more sense to yeah. me now yeah even to me i'm like yeah that's what i'm saying <laughs> yeah uh, she said quote uh this is a really good analysis this person is uh, i'm sorry this pattern is true across many rust belt legacy mid-sized cities deindustrialization hurt but the killer bro was the killer blow was sprawl sucking people out of the core It's not like the the economies of these cities would be going gangbusters if sprawl hadn't happened, but they'd be in much better shape than they are today, even assuming deindustrialization. So I think that really just kind of sums it all up is especially this piece where it's like Studebaker closing was bad. Losing the factories was bad, but what really like what really hurt South Bend was the fact that that happened and then people left to go live 10 miles away, not to go live in California, not to go live in Florida, but like just to go Mm -hmm. live in other parts of St. Joe County, but still be part of the South Bend community, but not contribute to it financially. Um, that's what was the killer blow as she says. Um, and that's, that's basically the, the argument. And I think I, I did my best to make it. Um, but you know, it could always be better, but, uh, yeah, it it'd be interesting if yeah. we lived in a world where sprawl hadn't happened. I think South Bend might only have 130,000 or 140,000 and like St. Joe County would still have the same population, but I think South Bend would look so much better. And I I want to say this like I think a good South Bend is really good for St. Joe County. Um it's not like a zero-sum game. I think like Right. If South Bend was better, I think everyone would be better off for it. Not just the people living here, but even the people who still remained in the suburbs. Um, because again, we are kind of the face of St. Joe County.
0: Yeah. Yeah, which I think gets to why this matters some. I mean, you've talked about this some, but I, that I, I think it. Like you're building towards an interesting argument that's like the thing that we, the way that we're going to undo this is not by attracting people from California or Florida to move here. It's uh, if we want to grow uh, South Bend's population, it's going to happen by people inside this County. And um, to Dustin's point about like the reaction and kind of, the personal nature of the response, Um, talking about suburbanization that, I mean, I think some of that comes from kind of what's so far, I think kind of an implicit uh, suggestion in the series that if you are living, you know, if you have left South Bend and live in the County, um, but yeah, still relate to South Bend and still care about South Bend and want the best for South Bend. Well, the best thing that maybe the best thing you can do is move into South Bend.
1: Yeah, live in the city.
2: Um, yeah, yeah. I think there's there's probably also something uncomfortable about it too, because I think this is very clear in both the uh, the data, but also just the kind of the structural policy issues here is that like this form of suburbanization is also like you can't say it without tying it directly to the racial issues, right? I mean, this is, and so when you're thinking about, you know, that reflection of the last 30, 40 years of the, the civilization, which, you know, now a lot of people, you know, the synonym for suburbanization is the white flight. Um, Like, I think that is also like a very, for a lot, for many people. And I think it's like an uncomfortable thing to think about being part of Um, even if it wasn't necessarily a conscious choice on an individual level yeah there's totally um
1: yeah and i think today you can make the argument that it's a lot less you know racial based even though if you look at the numbers it's it's not really um but what's interesting is i kind of think of it like a credit card like all this you know if all this if you want to talk about the racial aspects of it like we were doing all these things which hurt african-americans and then hurt the people who remained along with african-americans basically to to make it so white people could have built wealth out in the suburbs um and imagine that like a charge card like all those bad things we were building up debt well just Mm -hmm. because you stop swiping the charge card the debt didn't go anywhere Mm -hmm. like you still owe the bill just because Mm -hmm. you stopped making the bill worse doesn't mean the the debt went away. Like there's still all these legacy implications that affect people today in 2020, that as much as we would like them not to be the case they are. And I think it's kind of cowardly to say, no, no, like, well now it's, you know, an African-American now can go buy a house anywhere. And that happens. You know, I, I know African-Americans who leave the city. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that for the fifty years or you know however long you want to put the time frame, where they couldn't and where the people that remained had less wealth because of it, um, that adds up over time, and it doesn't just disappear because the practices stopped being as explicit and stopped being, mm-hmm. you know, as as charged. But like the 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 bad things never you know never came and were right. You know, we never righted the wrong
2: mm-hmm
1: yeah yeah well
0: sweet i think that is a really good uh summary and commentary on this article and i'm really looking forward to the next one
1: yeah um article three will be solely dedicated to 2000 to 2010 um which is kind of the idea for the series was always like House Up been Lost as People and like a history of it. So like I've covered up. I like went into the neighborhoods and saw what it looked like on the ground. And then in this piece, we kind of cover 1940 to 2000, and then a, we're spending a whole article just on 2000 to 2010 um, because I think it's that important and like it was that bad for the city. And I think it's going to be kind of eye opening to people, especially people who thought like the city was on a steady decline the whole time or people who thought like that the really bad times were the seventies. But like I get even beyond population a little bit um, in the next piece so far, I've got the draft almost done where it, I dig into, you know, wealth and income and it was just bad every in every direction. Um, so it'll be interesting to see people who, cause almost everyone who's listening and reading these probably lived through it. Um, or at least cognizant of it. Um, yeah. And it'll be interesting yeah. to see like if they think, oh, I didn't even notice when it was happening here or what. <laughs> I mean, that's, I,
0: I'll just like, yeah, put myself out there uh, before the article's out and say, uh, I am in that camp. I thought, yeah, I thought the decline was done and over. And it was just, uh, that happened before I was on the scene. <laughs> and uh, yeah, clearly not the case. Yeah.
1: So it'll be, I'm, I'm hoping people will, it'll get the response these first two have, because it, it's been wonderful. I, I want to thank everyone who's reached out with very nice things to say and very kind words. Um, Jake puts in a lot of work into this too. So I want to give him a lot of credit. He's the one who makes it look good online and it makes it actually work. I would have no <laughs> idea how to do any of that. Um, so it's just as much his project as it is mine and everybody. I have a bunch of editors who I always put at the bottom thanking them and um, Cause it's, it's a, it's a group project now more than just my lead. So
2: I I do want to quickly say, Joe, I think especially this week where we saw some of these other people from outside of South Bend pick this up and, and think about it and think about how it applies. I, I think it's a, it's a very cool way in a very odd time. Um, to still think about like what are the kind of interesting new weird ways of thinking of what South Bend can export um yeah and uh i think this is an awesome example of like the kind of things that we can authentically use the story of South Bend um to export especially in a in a weird weird time in our country yeah. so yeah i think it's uh, uh, it's really cool and i think you're doing an awesome job thank you
1: yeah i think I've always like in my head when I'm writing it, I imagine the listener knows South bend like that's in my head. Who's reading it. Um, So it's been really exciting to see people who aren't nearly as familiar with the city, um, pick it up and be able to take something from it that they can take back to their, you know, their city and learn. Um, So it's, it's been really cool.
0: Yeah. And I'd imagine that comes through in a good way for those people. I think like when I read something from somebody, um, writing about their town like it matters that i can feel that like these people care about the place that they're writing about and they're writing to people who are in their community with like a level of care and um thoughtfulness uh, that even if it doesn't completely all translator makes sense to me because i don't live there um it makes it that much more valuable
1: yeah i mean i think i'm one of the like truisms of writing is people always say like write what you'd want to read and it's like yeah I'd, I'd really like to read like an in-depth reason for why gary lost so many people or mm-hmm. chicago or detroit yeah. like so i no one had done it for south bend so i'm glad you know the three of us are doing this podcast and you know we're doing this program to to shed some light on it i think it's i've learned a ton and i hope other people have too
0: all right and I just want to note there that maybe we should start calling these programs instead of podcasts. I kind of like
1: that.
2: Yeah.
0: That's good. Like a radio program.
2: Maybe
1: a
0: Nice old school feel program. program.
2: Yeah.
1: And we'd be remiss well, not to say that there's a shirt now. Oh, yeah. that's
0: right. There's a shirt. <laughs> I need to, I need to shut down pre-orders on the shirt soon, but if you're listening to this, maybe I won't have done that. Uh, by the time you're listening to this and
2: you could get on that. Even, even if he has email him anyway. Yeah, there's demand okay, right. for the shirt. There's demand for the shirt. Good point, and there
0: there'll be more where that came from. Yeah, so not a one-hit wonder here. Yeah.